Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, a bill to weaken state ethics laws could make it easier for officials to avoid investigation. Ethics advocate and city council member Matt Carlucci calls it an assault on accountability. He'll join us later in the program. But first, between cyber attacks, expanding nuclear arsenals, and ongoing trade wars, it's a time of growing uncertainty and mistrust between the U.S. and China. I'm joined now by Robert Daly, director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Thanks for being here. Very good to be with you. And ahead of your speech tonight, Britt Hester, director of membership and communications for the World Affairs Council, which is sponsoring this event. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Anne. Thanks for being here. Robert Daly, you lived in and studied China about since you graduated from college. You even starred in a Chinese soap opera, and I want to get to that a little bit later in the program. But um, you began working in the late 80s, essentially, with China. How have you seen U.S.-China relations changed over that time? U.S.-China relations have changed along with China's changes. When I first got to China in 1987, this was before the Tiananmen Massacre in 1989, China was still extraordinarily poor. Parts of it, even around Beijing, borderline medieval. You could still see old women with bound feet uh, walking around in alleys. And so China has become, of course, very, very rich. They're the second largest economy in the world, first by some measures. And as China's become richer, it's done what almost any large country does when it gets wealthy, which is it tries to use its wealth to increase its power, its global influence. It tries to shape the global system, global values, global rules to be more like its domestic rules. And that has essentially brought us into what I think is best understood as a new kind of Cold War with China. Because for China, trying to turn wealth into power means trying to find ways to spread the Chinese Communist Party's extremely illiberal gov domestic governance practices internationally. In other words, to make the, the global environment in which we have to operate more like China. Strong central governments, top-down, fewer citizens' rights, a surveillance state. And so uh, we increasingly find ourselves at odds with each other, politically, economically, technologically, geostrategically, even in terms of ideological issues. And I think that that will probably uh, be the case for several decades. And it doesn't bring me any happiness to say that. I've been deeply involved with China, have engaged with China. There's a great deal that I, I love and admire, and that I think we should all love and admire about the Chinese people and about traditional Chinese culture. There is not much to love and admire about the way the Chinese Communist Party sees the relationship between governments and individuals. That's where our focus should be. You do talk in, in some of your work about how they are practicing something that in many ways the U.S. also practiced in terms of, you know, expanding wealth, attempting to uh, use its footprint to influence and change the global, you know, environment, um, and that they're taking a page in some ways from the model set by the United States. Yes, they are. I say any country that can uses its wealth to first make itself secure in the most narrow sense so that you wouldn't be invaded. And then you push your defensive perimeter outward. We have, since World War II, pushed our defensive perimeter so far outward that it comprises the entire globe. Most, I think, American citizens don't realize that America's policy, our foreign policy, is that we, as a matter of security, should not allow the emergence anywhere in the world of any regional hegemon. It means that there should be no country that has more power in its region than we can exercise in that region. We're number one. Now, the reason that people will nod and say, yes, we should do that, is because they believe that we are the good. It's okay for us to have global power because we're virtuous and people should understand that. Well, China thinks it's virtuous. They don't think they're the bad guy. Now, I think there are specific ways in which we can describe China as a, a, a bad player. Not a bad player across the board, but a bad player in terms of you know, top-down, non-democratic, non-transparent rulemaking and influence. There are real problems with China. But again, they don't think they're the bad guy. And they are an ancient civilization state, one-fifth of the world's population that has risen faster and more deeply than any other country. They feel like they've earned it. Uh, our idea is, well, you may be you know, bigger, you have more people, and your economy's growing. It doesn't mean we just hand over the keys to the bus. You know, you've, you've got to take it from us. And so we are increasingly in a, in a contentious relationship that draws in 
friends, allies, partners, the whole world. I mean, most national leaders have as one of their very top priorities navigating U.S.-China rivalry now. The, um, you say, like, we are not seen as, or we see ourselves as, as sort of the virtuous component of this two, you know, sure. uh, relationship. But, of course, America is not viewed necessarily as a, a good actor globally by a lot of countries. Um, and China has been able to use that fact in terms of, you know, our own failings internally or externally to good effect, you know, in terms of the carceral state in the United States and, you know, racial um, injustices. Um, talk a little bit about how the Chinese government has been able to use some of that, the facts about how this, you know, our own internal failings to their advantage. Sure. This came about uh, because for decades, the State Department every year has issued a China human rights report about all of China's human rights violations. Most countries uh, don't issue human rights reports every year about every other country on earth, uh, but we do. And there have been some very good impacts of that. We, we have changed some practices. Uh, but a lot of countries, certainly China, see it as arrogant, as an interference. And so they now issue an annual U.S. human rights report. Uh, they actually don't do that much investigation. A lot of it's plagiarized from American journalists and Americans' own work. But yes, they focus on the fact that we like to incarcerate more of our citizens than any other country on earth. Most of them are poor people of color. And so they speak a great deal about American racism and racial injustice. And uh, this helps them to win a lot of support, particularly in less developed countries, uh, what we're now calling somewhat uncomfortably the global south. Nobody really likes that term, mm -hmm. um, but that's the term that people are using. And they're successful not only in the global south, but among countries, and the list is fairly long, that don't want to have their decisions shaped by the United States, uh, that don't always experience American power as benign. And so, yes, as you suggest, um, it's America's racism, uh, it's incarceration. Uh, they also make great use of uh, what's going on with gun violence in the United States. You know, most the rest of the world sees our gun laws as insane, uh, and they can use that. And also, um, both Xi Jinping and Putin in, in, in particular have been very successful in portraying America um, as just maniacally woke uh, in ways that most of the rest of the world don't agree. So there are aspects of American the left side of American politics and the right side of uh, po American politics that strike many foreigners uh, as equally mad and that people like uh, Putin and Xi Jinping can use to win more uh, people to their causes. Well, if you have questions for Robert Daly about U.S.-China relations, you can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org or you can call 904-549-2937. You can also reach out and message us on Facebook, Instagram, or X. Um, Brett, I want to bring you into the conversation just briefly. Why is it important to have a voice like Robert Daly come to Jacksonville and talk about an issue of, of such global significance um, on the local level? Yeah. <clears throat> so essentially the World Affairs Council, that's what we do. We bring the world closer uh, to the First Coast. And it's important because obviously <clears throat> we promote lifelong learning and then knowing these issues, what's going on around the globe, you know, whether it's China, you know, we have someone coming to talk about Ukraine and Russia, what's happening there, knowing and being informed of what's happening and how that shapes our, you know, conversations here at home is, is vitally important. And so that's what the World Affairs Council exists to do. And uh, it's an exciting opportunity to bring these speakers here to Jacksonville. Robert Daly, there are so many challenges when it comes to this relationship. Um, the spy balloon, you know, is a, a, a large headline. I don't know if it was really significant in terms of that relationship, um, but certainly China is now looking at beefing up its nuclear arsenal, um, which could give it a, a very different role in terms of, you know, its in, its defensibility and its uh, its ability to kind of set the stage. I think some people have said, you know, the way that we responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, is dictated in part by their nuclear capabilities. Um, Taiwan tensions are a huge deal. Um, is there something that rises to the, to, and this, there was recently this information from Guam about this cyber infiltration of their systems, their electric and water grid, essentially. Right. Is any of those come to the, the highest level for you as like the most concerning issue? Well, certainly uh, the Taiwan question is, the, that's the place where it's easiest to imagine actually uh, 
going to war with China. I still think that that is not a high likelihood event. I think that we can avoid it through more careful diplomacy as well as deterrence. But it's a more dangerous place than it was just a few years ago. Uh, China is China's view is that Taiwan is part of an unfinished civil war and is none of our business. And that their view is that they will take it back. They would rather take it back peacefully and gradually if they can. But we should be in no doubt that if they thought Taiwan was slipping away irrevocably or if it declared independence, that they would move against it uh, militarily and that there's a very good chance then that we would be involved. It's, it's not certain. It would depend a lot on how that came down. But certainly it's more dangerous. And China also has expansionist territorial claims throughout the Western Pacific that involve the interests of allies like the Philippines, uh, potentially like Thailand. Uh, but it's the South, China sea, uh, the South China Sea and the Western Pacific are highly contested, and we have been the keepers of the peace there since World War II. We've been the offshore balancers, so our interests are very much involved. This is getting more dangerous. Again, I don't think that China is determined to move militarily on Taiwan in the short term. And I think that if we are smart and careful and work very closely with allies, uh, that we can avoid war with China. But it is getting more dangerous. Is it getting more dangerous because of things that we're doing, or is it getting more dangerous because of... Um things that China is doing. And I'm wondering in particular about, you know, visits that we've had from um, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, like how those play in terms of, you know, poking the bear. So both China and the United States have been taking more dangerous actions. Uh, we have been poking the bear, poking the dragon, we usually say in the, in, mm -hmm. in the case of China, doing things to show them that we can, that we know are going to be provocative, uh, like the Pelosi visit. Uh, which do not make the Taiwanese any safer. You know, and this was brought home to the Taiwanese after um, Nancy Pelosi visited, and China then uh, did a number of things militarily, brought uh, warships, fired missiles much closer to Taiwan than they ever had. It did not make the Taiwanese safer. It was made made them put them in greater danger. And so, when Kevin McCarthy had been speaking of going to Taiwan after he became Speaker of the House, Taiwan said, "Thanks." please don't. Let's meet in California. Uh, they don't want this. We have changed the nature uh, of what we call our one China policy. Uh, we have moved closer to Taiwan in a number of ways. We now know it's public knowledge. We have American military trainers on Taiwan. All of this is very provocative for China, and we know it. They also have been far more threatening. Uh, they're flying far more bombers and warplanes uh, not into Taiwanese airspace, but getting closer and more regularly. Um, and their, their surface vessels are getting closer. We've both been more provocative. Taiwan, I think, and some of my Washington colleagues would disagree with me on this, has not been provocative, but it has changed. Of course it's changed since 1972. It's become a vibrant democracy. It's a leading trading partner of the United States. And most importantly, most people of Taiwan do not see themselves as Chinese anymore. They see themselves as Taiwanese, that's something that's a existential threat to the Chinese government, and it's something that we rightly uh, feel bound to support. More and more, it seems that the you know the idea of China and concerns that people have about China has become part of political rhetoric, um, used you know for political gain or perhaps just to make a point. Um, I wonder how damaging or how influential, if at all, that is in the conversations that we're having globally with China when people are perhaps scoring points um, on China just to, you know, make a, 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 a significant dent here in the United States. So again, America has many legitimate concerns about Chinese behavior, Chinese goals, Chinese actions. So I don't mean to say that there is no challenge there. There certainly is, and it is deepening. However, uh, there have been, there's been rhetoric and action on the American side that I think is damaging not only to U.S.-China relations, it's actually damaging to us. Uh, and I'm thinking of things like, I think it's now 33 states, in, including this one, Florida, uh, which are passing laws that say uh, that, that Chinese can't buy real estate within their state. Um, this is tremendously damaging. This is essentially telling the world's largest talent pool uh, that they are a despised class in the United States. Uh, one of the big 
advantages of our relationship with China over the past 40 years has been the brain drain. Hundreds of thousands of top people, especially in STEM fields, have come here and stayed. And typically they get PhDs uh, from United States universities, and then they go to work here, donate their talent, and over a period of time they first become green card holders and then citizens. What these laws say is that while they're doing this, building families, making their lives here, they, they can't buy homes. And so it's, it's pushing them out. And these people are not all Communist Party agents. I've heard a number of American governors say, we are doing this to defend our people from the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that's fairly deranged, and that's how it, it can read uh, within China. And again, we're pushing out talent that we badly, badly need. And so the, the rhetoric has run way ahead of the facts and I think actually damages American interests. I'm not concerned that it hurts Xi Jinping's feelings. That's not the claim here. It hurts us by keeping vital talent out. And yet, you know, considering what happens to China, you've talked about is not insignificant. If we're talking about undermining the Communist Party there, if we're talking about destabilizing the economy in some respect, that is one fifth of the global population that, you know, would be impacted. And so it's not just a question of how does it impact the Communist Party of China, but this entire enormous population on earth that whose fortunes rise and fall to some extent with, with the countries. So this is, this is very difficult. We mostly speak about China as a political actor, and we lose track of China as a human proposition. And so the kind of question that we face now, especially because it is in many senses a new kind of Cold War, different from the first one, but it's a new kind of Cold War. And so this forces us to ask questions like, okay, China's economy right now is slowing. They're facing enormous challenges, the greatest that they've faced since 1978. Should our policy be to help China to fail so that it can no longer fund its political and its military expansion? That's, that's a fair question to ask. But of course, helping China to fail means directly harming the welfare of one-fifth of humankind. Is that where we want to be? That's a real dilemma because the Communist Party, insofar as China continues to develop and, and grow, the Chinese Communist Party can extract more resources that it can use to harm our interests in competition with us. But are we willing to harm you know, these individuals, extremely hardworking? Um, some of us, like me, are related to them. Uh, should that be our policy? That's a serious, very, very difficult question. How do we balance, as you suggest, the geostrategic and the human sides of this competition? I found your discussion about China really interesting, almost a little bit like a relationship counselor. Uh, um, <laughs> you've said that, you know, we're not necessarily asking the correct question, or at least not the right first question. Instead of asking what we want a country to do, um, we should be asking what? This is true not only of China, it's true of other countries as well. And, and here, this is something that uh, Dr. Kissinger wrote about a lot. I direct the Kissinger Institute. That doesn't make me Kissingerian in every way. Uh, I didn't work for Dr. Kissinger. But this is something that I think he has right. Uh, when you're dealing with another country, the first question is, why do they want what they want? What, what do they believe and why? What has their historical experience, their national mythologies, what has that taught them? You need to proceed from there if you're going to have an effective policy. You're all right. I was going to say it, it sort of compares to me. Um, the, there's a podcast by a very famous relationship um, counselor, Esther Perel, and she says the, the question that you should ask is not what some what you said, but what that person heard. You know, what are right. it's not just a matter of asserting, you know, we want you to do this thing. But what is it that that country wants, in fact? Yes. And so China wants it depends on how you ask and it depends on what you mean by China. Do you mean the Chinese people, or do you mean the government? What the Chinese people want uh, is the same as what we want. Uh, they want to have a better life uh, for themselves, for their children. They want a good future. A growing number of them also do want more freedom uh, that the party wants. And they make a very strong case that we have a right, just like you, to develop. All of that is true and is deserving of our sympathy and understanding. The Chinese Communist Party believes in top-down, utterly non-transparent, secrecy is their crack cocaine, 
governance of all wise, all knowing, all powerful political elites. And they increasingly operate uh, through a surveillance state in what has to be called techno totalitarianism. And they want world systems that are also non transparent, top down, uh, and run by technologically increasingly enabled governments. That's where it gets tough uh, because that's no and hell no, even for international engagers like myself, you know, who admire a great deal about China. And so it can be very difficult to say, how can we counter a government which is increasingly oppressive at home and aggressive internationally without harming these folks? And throughout human history, there's never been a great answer to that. And we're struggling with it today. Um, I'm curious how you've seen the COVID virus impact the country of China insofar as that techno surveillance that you're talking about. I mean, obviously there was this huge push from a health standpoint to track and make sure that people were not, you know, traveling outside of a zone where they might infect other people. Um, but that sort of remained in place, that architecture. The, the technological architecture is there. And if you want to purchase anything in China now, you do it with a QR code on your phone. If you want to hail a cab, almost anything that you do is tied to one of China's Uber apps. Uh, there's one called WeChat that, that most people use. And not only do they use it to pay for meals and pay for cabs, it's also their primary social media platform. It's their primary source of news. It's what they watch. You know, they watch cute cat pictures and all of this. This is sort of what Elon Musk wants to create. Right. And it's extremely dangerous because the government, or God forbid, Elon Musk, can capture all of this data. Uh, they can sell it. They can reuse it. They can process it. They can track you. In China, there are now in most major cities and even smaller cities, CCTV cameras everywhere on every street and in public spaces. And through use of big data and now artificial intelligence, they can use these cameras to take a picture of a crowd of one million people, know who those people are, know what they spend money on, know what websites they go to, know who their social networks are. And they even do, in China, increasingly something called predictive policing, which means that there is, for example, a, crimi a criminal type of way to hold your body, a posture that is worthy of suspicion. And they can note these using artificial intelligence uh, through these cameras. That's what China is increasingly becoming. And again, this is something we've got to be aware of and we have to be extraordinarily vigilant about. And so again, how do you balance the geostrategic concerns and our legitimate self-interest, not the barring people from buying homes, but legitimate self-interest uh, with a desire you know, to support the flourishing of one-fifth of humankind? And that's not really the conversation we're having, at least in Washington. It's much more hawkish uh, and aggressive and security-obsessed than what I've just described. We've got a couple of comments I want to just pass along and get to. Uh, Ed on Facebook says, China has no problem supporting it if it's to their benefit, any dictator and tyrant in the world. Unlike the United States, there is no Chinese people pressure not to help foreign dictatorships. There's a big difference. Um, Jay emailed, there's a substantial community of American expats in Taiwan. Any thoughts on how they would be handled in the event of China undertaking a military invasion of Taiwan? So uh, for the first question, yes, uh, China is in many ways a geostrategic bad actor. Uh, they are supporting uh, Vladimir Putin in his invasion of Ukraine. They have drawn closer to Iran. Uh, they work very closely with North Korea. Uh, with Venezuela. Uh, and so it can sound a little bit like a you know, sort of cartoon league of no goodniks. Um, <laughs> some of your listeners will be old enough to remember the old Bullwinkle and Rocky show, which, and the bad guys in that were, you know, Boris Badenov and Natasha No Goodnik. And some of China's uh, international actions and their growing partnerships really do seem like a, a, a cartoon uh, of that kind. And we do need to combat that. Now, again, we need to be aware as we do so that we've supported our share of dictators too uh, when it supported us. And so we need to not paint this in black and white. Uh, we need to have a good deal of introspection and historical self-knowledge uh, before we go preaching about absolute good and evil um, when our hands are in many ways also dirty. Uh, I would say not as dirty in the same way. And because we have political pluralism and freedom of speech, we've always had loud internal critics who have in fact 
made a difference. Uh, but the, that first questioner is, is correct, that China is working with other countries uh, who work very strongly against uh, American interests. And that's, that's one of the things that makes this a new Cold War. Yes, there are Amer a lot of American expats uh, in Taiwan. And uh, if China felt that it had to move against Taiwan, it would do so quickly. And whoever's on the island is on the island and the, the, the chips fall where they may. Um, so this is something that uh, I would still move to Taiwan. I would still live there. I don't think an invasion is imminent and Taiwan is a terrific place. But American expats always you know, are in dangers of this kind. So your mention of rocking Bullwinkle is going to make me move to a, a different topic about your own past in China, um, which not necessarily people would know, but you were a star on a soap opera for a number of years. Yes. Uh, and are actually hugely recognizable in China. Um, one of the most popular shows that has ever aired there. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, it was hugely recognizable 30 years ago with the, the ravages of time. I think I'm, I'm a little less easy to, to pick out on the street. But this was uh, filmed in 1992-1993, and it was a 21-part series called A Native of Beijing in New York. And it was very well-timed because this is when you'd had the first major waves of Chinese, and especially Chinese elites, going to America to live and settling there. And obviously people in China were curious about why, why would they do that? What are their lives like? And that's what this television show purported to describe. Uh, and it starred a good friend of mine who's one of the great actors uh, and directors in China, a guy named Jiang Wen. And it was his show, and he was the one who really made it as great as it was. But the score was done by China's number one, sort of their, their Billy Joel, Elton John, you know, pop singer. So it had a lot of good music, uh, some terrific actors. I was not one of them. Uh, one of our producers uh, was the uh, Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, who subsequently, subsequently became a very famous international dissident. At that point, he was living in an underground apartment uh, in the East Village, making his money at the blackjack tables in Atlantic City. Uh, he helped produce the show. So it was a coming together of people who already were or who would subsequently be superstars of Chinese culture, music, directing, acting, the arts. And I was just through a, a freak of luck, was the number two male lead in what was essentially a racial, economic, sexual, one-upsmanship competition kind of story. Uh, but I was on their shoulders, uh, and it was just one of a number of things in my career that have been freak Good luck. And I know something that'll be near and dear to NPR listeners' hearts. You also helped produce the Chinese language version of Sesame Street, which I think is a, a great little detail. Robert Daly, just briefly, what can people expect to hear tonight when you're uh, addressing the, the World Affairs Council Distinguished Lecture, lecture Series? So please uh, come join us uh, for this talk if you like. Hope to see you there. I'm going to be talking uh, a little bit more about why I think this is a new Cold War. What that means, including what that means for American citizens how long it's likely to last, what we should be aiming for, and what is the nature of this competition, because it is going to be shaping all of our lives uh, in numerous ways. One of the features of the Cold War is that opposition to the rival becomes an organizing principle of government, not just a concern of the garden, you know, garden variety concern, a real organizing principle of government, and that's happening. So how will that involve us? And then very importantly, uh, how will it not involve us? You know, those of us who grew up during the first Cold War, I was I was born um, Bossier City, Louisiana, Barksdale Air Force Base, uh, shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, and for us, you know, growing up during the Cold War really wasn't that bad, right? We still had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and everything was going on mostly as normal. So we have to pay more attention to China in a Cold War way, but we also have to not panic. We need to focus in the right ways understanding that a Cold War, while it's sinfully wasteful and costly and dangerous, is essentially a, a play for time, is a stalling technique during which life still goes on in many ways. And so I'll be talking tonight about what we're stalling for, what we're waiting for, how a Cold War might end. But I'm mostly going to be giving listeners a, a description of where I think our real focus on China needs to be. And it's not necessarily on the things that you hear about most, like TikTok or Confucius Institutes or spy balloons. Uh, those things are interesting, but sort of marginal to the real competition that we're in with China. 
Robert Daly, director at the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute, will be speaking tonight at 7 o'clock as part of the World Affairs Council Distinguished Lecture Series. You can get tickets by going to worldaffairscouncil.org. Brett Hester, director of the World Affairs Council. Robert Daly, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. And coming up next, a bill that could dismantle Florida's ethics laws. Welcome back. Well, there's growing concerns about a bill that has been sailing through some areas of the legislature this last week uh, to roll back Florida's ethics laws. It was approved unanimously last week by the state Senate. It's generating growing pushback at the state and local level, however, and I'm joined now by at-large city council member Matt Carlucci. Welcome to the program, Matt. Thank you. Nice to be here. What questions? Oh, sure. Absolutely. What questions or concerns do you have about this rollback to state ethics laws? You can give us a call at 904-549-2937 or email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also message us on social media. Uh, Matt, you're a former member of the State Ethics Commission. You helped create the Jacksonville Ethics Commission. What's the purpose of ethics commissions? Well, the uh, uh, is to keep our government uh, on the straight and narrow. Uh, to keep ethical principles uh, in front of us as guiding lights to doing the right thing. And, um, and the uh, local commission, the most local commissions around the state, uh, have continuing ed and ethics training for new uh, council members and even seasoned council members. So they play a huge role in keeping our democracy, um, you know, transparent and accountable. Why does this bill concern you in particular? The bill does two things. It, it uh, takes away the ability from somebody to file a complaint unless you have personal knowledge. So I, I kind of call it they have put into, they're trying to put into the ethics uh, code that you can't file a complaint unless you have personal knowledge of that complaint. And is that un- unusual or difficult to uh, it's ascertain? Very, it's very difficult. Um, Can you give an example? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay, here's an example I thought of. Uh, now, this is a long time ago, before ethics commissions were around. But my dad, pre-consolidation, heard that public officials were uh, buying things for their cars, for their themselves, for their wives, uh, having kitchens remodeled, charging it to the city. Dad had no personal knowledge of that. But he did research. He went into the books, and he found the paper trail. And there was one particular commissioner who bought his wife a brand new remodeled kitchen and sent the bills over to the, agri- the, the county agricultural department to pay for them. Now, Dad had no firsthand knowledge or personal knowledge of this particular commissioner. He just heard what was going on and he dug into it. So, this would prevent people, this particular amendment would prevent people from seeing things in, uh, that don't quite look right in doing their own investigation, reading audits, going over the minutes of meetings, looking at disclosures. And if they come to the conclusion that they feel they've got a case, uh, then they can file, a dis- they can file an, eth- an ethics complaint. So Under be, this bill, you could not do that. Th- that would be one component of it. So you would have to have firsthand knowledge. What's your second concern? Uh, it takes away self-initiation of um, complaints away from the uh, local ethics commissions. Uh, Jacksonville can self-initiate uh, an investigation. Uh, I think Miami and Palm Beach and some of the others can uh, self-initiate an investigation if they deem um, uh, that there should be uh, by what they've seen, what they've read from newspapers, listened to on the radio, things aren't adding up. We better look into this. And you look into it and you find out there's a voting conflict or perhaps an elected official is 
uh, gaining from a vote that he or she took, which gave them a disproportionate gain um, because of a contract that they voted for with a company they invest with. Uh, So if you relegate it to personal knowledge, I just don't know many eyewitnesses to this kind of stuff. And even if they were an eyewitness, sometimes people are scared to uh, file a complaint because it may have repercussions on them or maybe even their job. And and that's something else I want to ask you about, because it it sounds to me as though this bill would involve disclosure of someone's name. So the ability to anonymously um, report on something that you might even have firsthand knowledge of, but perhaps you're concerned about your job or your future or just some sort of retaliation. It would require you to sign an affidavit, have it notarized under oath and all this kind of stuff. And they're just making it harder for the public to hold themselves accountable. So bottom line is politicians in Tallahassee and elsewhere trying to protect their political hide. So the passage of this bill would impact the local level as well. The ability, as you said, for local ethics commissions to act on behalf it, of their citizens. It, it weakens guts, both the state ethics commission and the Jacksonville and other local ethics commissions. Uh, it's, it's, and in the way it was done and it was, it just, I only found out about this at the, at the like last 10 days or so because of some report, uh, that got out. But this amendment to the Senate otherwise innocuous ethics bill traveling its way through the proper channels in Tallahassee, and then a senator dropped this language in there, which is like a bombshell, uh, and he did it on the Florida Senate. His, his amendment had no public hearing, did not go through committee process. It was snuck in through uh, the, on the Senate floor. Nobody really knew all the details, and it passed 39 to nothing. Do you think our local lawmakers, our senators who are uh, Clay Yarborough, uh, Jennifer Bradley, Travis Hudson, and Tracy Davis knew what they were voting for? Well, <clears throat> I can't speak for the others, but I had a conversation with Senator Yarborough, and he, he picked up on what was going on, and he spoke to it, and I appreciate him speaking up for it. Uh, and uh, there were some people that felt like, and perhaps Senator Yarborough thought, well, the rest of the bill is really needed, so I'm going to vote for the whole package. But in that package was that poison pill. And, but I think probably uh, Senator Yarborough has a, a record of, 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 um, of helping uh, ethics um, locally here in Jacksonville. I, I think he was caught um, somewhat by surprise. I think everybody was. We've got a call, Stanley on the north side. Good morning, Stanley. Welcome to First Coast Connect. You there, Stanley? All right, I'm going to move on to Javon. Good morning, Javon. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. My question is, how would this law have impacted the investigation around everything that happened with JEA? Because as I understand it, it started with a bit of hearsay and rumors and people not necessarily understanding what was happening until investigations started happening. Um, and there were certainly uh, a lot of questionable decisions and, and um, things going on there. And I would also say, like, the legislature continues to try to find ways to um, to kind of take JEA from the city of Jacksonville. So um, the legislature tends to move in ways that, you know, when they want something, they find a way to get it. And now it seems like they're trying to create cover. So how does the ethics, how do our ethics protect us from these sorts of things? I mean, it's a good question, Matt Carlucci. Well, the JEA is obviously one of the biggest scandals yeah, that, that in, is, in a long time in the city. It's a, it's a very uh, great point the caller's making. Uh, because Jacksonville's Ethics Commission can self-initiate investigations, they took it upon themselves to start uh, investigating that whole thing. Uh, they initiated themselves and sent Carla Miller, who was the ethics director, when they were holding these talks, negoti- negotiated talks in Atlanta. They weren't holding them in Jacksonville. They were holding them up in Atlanta where nobody could see them. But because we could self-initiate, Carla Miller found her way in uh, to those hearings, into, into those talks, 
and she took notes. She, re- I mean, she recorded everything. I don't know with a recorder, but you know, on her journal. And when she came back, it was like a bombshell because of everything she found out that was that was happening. And uh, in between her and our council auditor uh, and some others, they really played a major role in killing uh, the. Uh, privatization of JEA. Yeah, of course, that ended up being investigated on so many levels. Federal, the state attorney's office looked at it, the city council looked at it. Um, but that component of the Ethics Commission's involvement and Carla Miller's involvement really did add a very um, important component to it. Between her and the council auditor's silver bullets, <laughs> those were the two. The, the council auditor and Carla Miller, they had the silver bullets that really put the death nail yeah. into that whole uh episode, bad episode. The Ethics Commission has uh, passed a resolution just yesterday opposing this legislation, um, and they sort of describe it as, you know, a a solution in search of a problem. They say that, you know, between 2015 and 2023, they only received 55 anonymous complaints, um, and they only recommended that 12 of those move forward to any level of investigation, and in the end, the commission only moved forward with two. So Mm -hmm. the number of complaints that are coming in that would be, you know, arbitrary, anonymous, unfounded, relatively small. Well, it's because the Ethics Commission doesn't do witch hunts. So if they get a complaint, they vet it before they, you know, take it up before the body of the Ethics Commission. And so, but, but, you know, you got to think about what would happen if we did not have an Ethics Commission? What if we had never had an Ethics Commission in Jacksonville? What if there was no Florida uh, Commission on Ethics? What if none of these organizations were around? i tell you what would happen. It would advance bad behavior, much more bad behavior than really there already is amongst a lot of elected officials and appointed officials. At this point, what do you advise people to do on this issue? Uh, I would call your legislator in Tallahassee, email that legislator. Uh, there's, a, there's a committee... <clears throat> that might have taken this up in the House. The Senate language is not in the House bill. So if we, if we can keep that language from getting on the House bill, then it'll die. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the House was supposed to take up, um, or, or if they could have taken up the Senate language, it would have been tomorrow at the State Affairs Committee in Tallahassee. Uh, the agenda shows that it's not uh, going to be discussed. Uh, hopefully that is true, it will not be discussed, then the only other way the legislature could include this would be to do it on the floor of the House. You can sneak things in on the floor of 40 people a lot easier than you can uh, in, I don't know how many people in the legislature, 120. That's a little tougher to do. So if we get past tomorrow, that's good news A, then we just need good news B. (laughs) City Council Member Matt Carlucci, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. My pleasure. Up next, a local partnership that brings classical music to your ears. WJCT Public Media and the Jacksonville Music Experience presents Black Opry Review live on the WJCT soundstage on Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. A celebration of the diversity and versatility of country music, the Nashville-based collective has been praised by Rolling Stone, NPR, and more. Tickets and more information at jacksmusic.org events. takes you outside your borders and connects you with the most important events happening all across this big blue marble. We introduce you to memorable people whose stories will stay with you for a lifetime. I'm Marco Werman. And I'm Carolyn Beeler. Global news and inspiring voices that will keep you on top of the world. Listen each weekday. This afternoon at 3 here on WJCT News 89.9.
I'm Robin Young. Photographer Harry Benson remembers the epic pillow fight when the Beatles came to America 60 years ago. He took the pics, Paul took the hit. John hits him in the back of the head with a pillow. And it went on for about half an hour. The management and the hotel had to come up. But I was getting good pictures, so I was encouraging it. Next time, here and now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. The Declaration of Independence promised the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Today, most of us think of happiness as something that results from the pursuit of pleasure. But the writer and historian Jeffrey Rosen says the Constitution's framers had other ideas. He tells us why next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. And we're back. WJCT and the Jacksonville Symphony have joined forces to produce encore performances of the symphony's concerts for WJCT 899 HD2, which is our 24-hour classical music station. I'm joined now by Steve Liebman, Jacksonville Symphony president and CEO, who's going to tell us a little bit more about this initiative. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks for being here. So this, it's not a new partnership, WJCT Public Media and the Symphony, because we've collaborated for many, many years. We have. Uh, uh, your president, CEO, Dave McGowan, is a great collaborator. And so we have worked together on a program called Insight, which is when our music director, Courtney Lewis, comes down here and records information that is then pushed out on our social media platform. But all of that recording takes place here at, uh, at WJCT, and we're really grateful for that. We think it's important, this new program that we're launching, because you've got two phenomenal arts organizations, uh, cultural organizations, WJCT, and the Jacksonville Symphony. We're the largest performing arts organization in Northeast Florida. So we have this brand new partnership that we're here to talk about today. And there's a huge audience for classical music in and around Northeast Florida and the First Coast. Um, talk a little bit about what you see in that audience, what you try to give them and what they ask for from the symphony? Sure. Thanks. Great, great question. We reach about 100,000 people a year through performances at Jacoby Symphony Hall, and then we reach another 43,000 students through our community education uh, and music education program. The audiences here just love everything we're doing, whether it's an introduction to music through, uh, through movies or pops, but they also focus on our classical programs. We do 11 classical concert weekends a year, and with this new initiative that we're doing with WJCT, we'll be broadcasting eight concerts per year um, with with you, which is a absolutely wonderful, wonderful way to showcase classical music. And we're beginning <clears throat> the series with eight concerts, as I mentioned, from the 22-23 season. And, and I believe that runs Sunday evenings uh, at 7 p.m. starting on March 3rd. Excellent. And so this series um, is going to kick off with Tchaikovsky, is that right? A yes. piano concerto that is very well beloved. How would you describe the performance for those who've never heard it? Talk a little bit about Tchaikovsky and, and his musical style. Sure, absolutely. Well, this Tchaikovsky uh, was is is a patron favorite all over all over the world. Uh, early in my career, uh, I used to run ballet companies. The head of the San Francisco Ballet. This talks about Tchaikovsky. Said all executive directors of ballet companies and symphonies should have a bust of Tchaikovsky in their lobby and you should bow down before it every every single day because the music is absolutely exquisite and accessible. And so this, the Piano Concerto Number 1, uh, is lovely. It will be played by uh, Tian Shu An, who's a world-famous pianist, and you'll hear that on, on, the, uh, on the concert. It's part of our Florida Blue Classical Series. And then it's also part of what we call the David M. Hicks Piano Series. And we try to feature as many great world-class pianists as possible. The program continues with Shostakovich Festive Overture. And then, of course, we have Stravinsky's very famous piece called Petrushka, which was also part of the, uh, the ballet repertoire. But the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto Number no. 1 is, is an absolute favorite among classical music fans. And whether you know classical music or not, 
I think you'll hear it and you'll just fall in love with the piece. And people who may not know Tchaikovsky by name certainly know some of his music, The Nutcrackers, of course. Uh, Sleeping Beauty, Swan Lake, right. all of those ballets. The, all of those ballets are favorites. And I think our audiences are exposed to Tchaikovsky both through the classical performances on stage at Jacoby Symphony Hall and then at the at the Moran Theater when we, when we perform The Nutcracker and about uh, 15,000 people a year come through and see our performance of, uh, of the Nutcracker. The, um, it's, it, what we're launching with WJCT in many ways is, is rather groundbreaking um, because we have the, uh, the first on March 3rd, the Tchaikovsky, and then on March 10th, we have a program of Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. And I, and I should add, what we're doing is these are concerts that were recorded live in Jacoby Symphony Hall as part of our 22-23 season. And so we did 11, and we're, we're showing you uh, eight of these absolutely gorgeous concerts. You'll, you'll hear the orchestra warming up, and then you'll get to uh, hear the applause. So I think your listeners uh, will have the experience of sort of being in the hall without exactly being in the hall. So listeners with HD Radio can find this classical music 24 hours a day on 89.9 HD2, and you can also listen on jacksmusic.org or the WJCT app, uh, is commentary also provided? Yes, yes. So what Courtney Lewis has done is provided a brief commentary at the beginning and then in between each piece. Well, thank you so much, Stephen Liebman, for being here, for partnering on this great classical music endeavor. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We are deeply grateful for the partnership. And that's our program. You can email feedback and suggestions for future conversations to First Coast connect at wjct.org if you missed anything you can catch the rebroadcast at eight o'clock tonight or find today's show and all of our archives at wjct.org and your favorite podcast platforms the executive producer of first coast connect is david luckin our producer is stacy bennett kathy waterman is our associate producer and our director is brady Corum. join us again wednesday when we wonder if should pension money be used to pay for a new stadium we're going to discuss that and more with local government expert chris hand I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.